everybody, this is Dr. Steve Rios. Welcome to another edition of Wavemakers. Today on Wavemakers, you're going to hear about the work of my good friend, Virginia Emmons McNaught, who is co-founder and president of Educate Tomorrow, a Miami-based nonprofit organization. Virginia recently began a one-year fellowship with the Drexel Fund Founders Program. Now, Virginia's wave-making journey started as the youngest of eight children living in humble conditions in Wisconsin. But as an adult, she has traveled to more than 50 countries and has been honored by two presidents for the groundbreaking education work that she's been involved with. Most recently, Virginia has developed an innovative education program called the Global Field Academy. The Global Field Academy caught the attention of the Drexel Fund, which is a national venture philanthropy fund that supports entrepreneurs like Virginia and helps them launch and develop innovative education programs for underserved populations. On today's Wavemakers, Virginia will tell us about her innovative program and give us some insight into how and why she makes waves. So join us and listen carefully to Wavemaker Virginia Emmons McNaught. I would like to welcome to Wavemakers Mrs. Virginia Emmons McNaught. Hi, thank you, Steve. Dr. Rios, for having me. <laughs> it's great to have you. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on Wavemakers on your very first day as a Drexel Fellow. Thank you. When you hear the word wave maker, what comes to your mind? <laughs> I think of like a phoenix batting their wings and making waves onto the ocean and making the ripple effect. So it's really the wind. It's, more, it's really more about the wind than the water. Oh, maybe that's why I came up with the phoenix. Maybe. There you go. <laughs> that's what it is. I mean, what moves the water? Yeah, exactly. The wind moves the water. Do you see the screen? I do. Steve is showing me a picture of a water phoenix. It's not, not just a phoenix above the water. It's a phoenix coming out of the water. That's powerful. So what's the connection for you between the phoenix making waves and your life up to now? I don't know why I thought about the phoenix making the, the waves. I think it's probably somewhere in the space of when you say wave maker, I hope that I'm not a tsunami. Making a wave is amazing ability and power, but you have to know when the right time to make the wave is. You know, when some matters, I feel like jumping in and being like a cannonball and being like, let's do this. And yeah. other times, let's kind of put our toe in the water and see what's the best approach for this particular advocacy moment that we're yeah. about to have. Well, that's good. That, that, that's a good way to, to start off and, and frame kind of the conversation about your advocacy. So maybe what we should do then is just go straight in. What is a Drexel Fellow? So today is day one of my Drexel Fellowship. And my understanding, as I'm learning the ropes here, is that it is a year of thought, reflection, articulation, and really the time and the space to further articulate this vision I have about education in the world. Today is day one, and the first month is a time of thinking and reflection, and so I have a small stack of books that I have been meaning to read to 
help further define my thoughts on, on the subject and just be ready for what's ahead. And then there's a certain point where I express all of these views and innovation and concepts to a team that decides if there's going to be a further investment. Well, and give us a little insight into, into the meat, the meat of the matter. What is it that Drexel was so impressed with? You know, what, what was your proposal? What got them to say, we'll support your vision? So the concept that we're working on and we've been doing as a demonstration project the last three years is really it's a micro school concept whereby each family and each child is essentially their own school. And then our network of support provides the opportunities and support to be able to help them design a learning plan, deliver the learning plan and maximize their potential. And it's working. I mean, in the in the little test group that we have, it's working. We are being able to support families and make we make sure the parents have housing and the kids have food and we have the social emotional learning component where, you know, we, we pay attention more to the child's rhythms and how they're showing up that day before we start trying to cram down academic information and experiences for them to learn. And I think that's a really huge differentiator. So how many people have been involved in this experimental process or this pilot school? So we have about 30 students and their families that have been a part of the demonstration project. And they've really led the way in giving us the feedback and um, opportunity to work with them. And so this design with Global Field Academy, it's really designed around a socioeconomic uh, model where we make sure we have uh, representatives from very poor to very wealthy and then provide the the same level of support for all of those families to be able to um, experience their community and their education in a a thoughtful way that, that meets each family where they're at. Each child where they're at. All right. So you talked about the, the diversity of folks that you have there. Um, but I think I, I think by this time, people are still probably a little bit, maybe a little bit unsure. I mean, is this a Montessori school? Is this a, a learning center? Is this a homeschool situation? I mean, you know, what's going on there? Yeah. What is going on there? Okay. So you're saying, how did we get here? What is this thing? And I think the best way to describe what Global Field Academy or field, as we're affectionately calling it, is, is a homeschool enrichment center, micro schools, that functions something similar to a health club membership. So what we do is, like, if you're going to join a fitness club, you can have, you know, you, you can join classes, you can work out by yourself. You can come in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, what works best for you. And you can work with a trainer or not. And you have the options. So then what our team does is we act for these centers and and now possibly a school is we act as that that type of center. So if if a student enrolls, say, as like a private school member, they're pretty much giving us the keys. They're saying, you know, we don't know this education landscape. We want you just to educate our kids. I got to go to work. I can't handle this. If you're more in the hybrid space and want to be a part of the model, we educate the families 
and coach them on how to be active participants in the education and delivery experiences for their child. And so if you have a child, you bring a child into the center, there's a lot of different opportunities happening. They can take classes, they can take enrichment classes, they can do virtual classes if they want. But the experience is set up for that individual child and that individual family. So if a child wants to come or family, it works better for their schedule to be more of like a 10 to 6 family than an 8 to 2, then we can work with them to provide that level of accommodation. Does that answer your question, Steve? (laughs) The health analogy, health club analogy was very helpful. Well, when you're trying to work on something so innovative, it would be like trying to explain to somebody the iPhone before it came out. You know, think about a smartphone. You're like, that's just, you're like, wait, what? It can do what? It's like a computer in your hand. You're like, I hear what you're saying. It sounds optimal, but I just don't see how it's working yet. (laughs) So when you tell people that they actually have control over their education, yeah. It's extremely terrifying at first. You're like, wait, I can't do that. I don't have time for that. I have to go to school. But but the fact of the matter is, is when education was designed, you know, back in the 40s and became compulsory, there weren't that many educated individuals. There yes. weren't that many people that were more educated than a headmaster at a school. But now we have 3 million certified educators in the United States. But there's like over... 30 million or 40 million people who have master's degrees. I mean, the numbers are astronomically higher for people who have master's degrees than people who have certified education. And so our population is more educated right now than we ever have been. So it's fair to say or think that there are parents out there who, you know, want to have some type of latitude in being able to help make decisions about how their child's going to be educated. Yes. We're not where we were, you know, that we have to just drop off our kids and, and be like, say, la vie, I hope the education district can Especially take care of As a matter of fact, people are being forced to, to be with their kids 24-7. I mean, right. you, you started, a, a, you started a, a program which is now desperately needed. Right. Well, and that's, you know, a big part, I think, maybe as well as why I was selected for the Drexel Fund and was a finalist for the Innovative Schools Program by Walton is that, you know, this is an interesting time. You know, I had people, I I had made this pitch uh, a year or so ago to the same foundation who wasn't really quite ready for it. And then, um, and one of the things, the feedback that I got is like, you say homeschool and it doesn't resonate with me because I'm a person who would never be interested in homeschool or any thing like that. And now it's like, slam, it's in your living room. How come you're not ready? How come you don't know how to homeschool your kid? And now we're trying to kind of work with this in this vacuum where you're like, okay, there's this curriculum that was developed by the district that's designed to be delivered to children sitting in desks in front of you. And that's not where we are anymore. Now we're looking at this curriculum being like, oh, wait, this isn't the way that this is going to go. I mean, (laughs) these kids are going to be in my my living room and I've got a conference call at one. So how am I going to do this? And so the way that we work this is that the curriculum is secondary to the pedagogy. The pedagogy is the way that students find information. And the pedagogy is a four-step process, very simple. There are certain benchmarks that we could all agree upon that will make a child whole and competitive as they age. 
So when you look at these benchmarks, you decide, do we want to use Common Core? Do we want to use Montessori? Do we want to use um, Waldorf or what have you? And, and all of that to us is like, you know, do you want to be, if I go back to my uh, health club model, do you want to be a bodybuilder? Do you want to be a triathlete? Do you want to be a circus person? Um, the way that you want to work with your body is like the way that you want to work with your mind. It's going to be individualized to each child. So if we have a family that comes in and says, these are the benchmarks because we want to make sure that our child is ready for X or Y or Z, yes. then we use those benchmarks. Yeah. And, but the process that we get to those benchmarks is mastery. So if you give us a set of benchmarks, we're working that to mastery. And the way that we work it to mastery is we use and partnered with an organization called Learning One-to-One -One Foundation, and they use relational education uh, 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 designed by the Fontaine family in, in Colombia, the country. And it's really like each benchmark, we figure out where we are on that benchmark, which is our starting point. The second part is we do research on that benchmark, and research could be anything. It could be online, reading, any way that you want to find out this information. The third part is skill development. Let's build the skill for this child to a level that they're comfortable with this information so that when they're in the real world, they can relate this information to their reality, which becomes a relational education component. And once they're able to relate, we call it relational mastery, once they can relate whatever the concept is to their life, then we know that this benchmark is mastered. So back to the health club model. If you're working out, you don't get an A or a B or a C. I mean, you can self-rate yourself. You're like, I could have tried a little harder today, but like I really, you know, didn't push myself. And, but you're not there until you're actually able to, to master something. So to us, grades are um, irrelevant. We don't use them because they're the only thing that we look at is, did you achieve your goal? And if you haven't achieved your goal, then we, you know, keep it in that cycle. And it could take you one student a week to master something and another student three years. But we don't leave out the idea that we wanted to master that concept. And so I hope that answers your question. No, the, the concept of mastery is, is so powerful. As a matter of fact, there's some parts in India that say, I don't care where you get your education about engineering. All we are is going to certify that you know how to be an engineer and you pay us X amount of money and we will certify that and you'll be hired somewhere. Right. And I believe that ex that movement is exploding. And it's also what makes our model extremely affordable is that we are not spending money on bricks and mortar. And what we do is actually we partner with community organizations that already have amazing spaces, community centers, museums, recreation facilities. And they say, hey, look, we don't even have staff don't even arrive at our facilities until two o'clock because they're all kind of waiting for these kids to show up. In the case of Miami, it's 450,000 students that are in their school until, you know, around two o'clock. And then all of these other services and programs kick in. So we've partnered with several of them to say, hey, while you're not using your space, we'd like to bring our group over to be able to capitalize on the educational opportunities that you're providing. And then we you know, subcontract to them and we get amazing rates and are able to keep our experience affordable because we're all paying a fair price for what's happening and we don't have to take on 
massive rent or build buildings. And you're taking to these these the students to field trips a couple of times a week, right? Right. So students who started with us three years ago have already experienced over 200 field experiences. Now, if you think about that, kids who are coming in and not in kindergarten, coming in in like the third or fourth grade, I would argue to say that they're a little bit behind because they haven't had the experience of the, and the vast resources and knowledge that is out there in the community. And the things that the kids are participating in are uh, phenomenal life experiences. And what is, and it's one of the reasons why I also feel really passionate about the field opportunity, especially coming from working in Africa and, you know, working with kids who are aging out of the foster care system is that, there are so many kids who were having this conversation in Miami who've never seen the beach, never even been there, and or museums or anything. Parents are busy. They don't have time to stop and take their kids to places. So then whose responsibility is it? Well, we give our kids to the school system, and, and so then we're hoping that they fulfill this, but there's so many kids so, I mean, this is my attempt. And my attempt in, in doing this was never to upset or the public school system or start a private school or any of that. It's like, and I've tried to do all of it. I've tried to get into the school district and pr- promote this concept and all that. It seems like this is the Drexel Fund and this private school model will be on my path of least resistance right now. But it's really just to demonstrate what could possibly be done with the same amount of resources that they're using in the lowest paid state for education in the country. And I think like Utah spends like the least amount of money on education and it's around $6,500. And so that's what we're trying to do is stick to that number so that if we can do this model and deliver it in this way with the lowest you know amount of funding that, that, that anybody could try to at least include some of these elements into their model of delivery. That's a wonderful idea. I don't want to take too much more of your time. I just wanted to, to ask you this question because your analogy is the health club, which is really excellent. My analogy is this, this wave, this concept, but the wind moves the water with pressure and friction. What role does pressure, putting pressure on people to change and creating friction related to how things are and how they should be helping people understand gaps. I mean, what role does pressure and friction play in being a wave maker? Well, my beginning story is that I'm the youngest of eight children. I grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in a two-bedroom, one-bathroom house. So 10 people in this little house. Wow. And what was amazing was that we had a, a... very nice community that was there to support us, even though my family was experiencing some level of poverty. And also, you know, we had a lot of challenges that went along with that. If you can imagine parents and how stressed out my parents were and what an environment like that would would be like. And You said uh, 10 people in two bedrooms? 10 people in two bedrooms. So... um, like my parents' room and then the kids' room. But we were all like, you know, 15 years difference between me and my brother, who's the oldest. So 
it wasn't like by the time I was in sixth grade, I had my own room, you know, so (laughs) these people were leaving or not my own room, but you know, and so, um, when you say friction and force, I, that's how I think back to like my founding experience is all of those hardships and trials and, you know, living in that way and, and experiencing those things really just shaped me as a person and gave me the motivation to want and to do and to be more. So when you're talking about water and movement, and I lived for three and a half years near the river, Niger, the Niger River, second largest river in Africa. Um, first as a Peace Corps volunteer, and then, you know, I stayed on in the city of Niamey as an educator, but still would go down to this village, which is where, you know, actually where we still support a, a school. Um, is that massive and massive amounts of water were flowing by every single day. I mean, if you, tragically, people died in the river all the time because the water was moving at such a speed and people didn't know how to swim and there were hippos. I mean, it was a really phenomenal place, but I would sit along that river and look out at it and you couldn't hear it. There was no rapid or ripple or like water. You couldn't hear a sound. You could be literally standing with your toes in the water and it didn't make a sound, but the water was moving so rapidly and so immensely and so fast Um, because it had been there so long and it had worn its path through the entire Africa. And so there's, there's, but incredible amount of friction, but it's the slow patience and movement that, makes us a stone smooth kind of like you had to stay in the same place until there's no more barriers that's That's, no that's a fantastic analogy i think we are the same way um as an organization is that you're right we're going to stand there until everybody leaves until a new group comes in and we call it like uh silent infiltration like you don't even know what happened all of a sudden we're working in your schools we're working we've got positions funded in your office and then we create the whole movement. But uh, actually, this was another thing I learned in Africa, is it was so hot there. You know, when, you know when you're in a sauna, you can't stay in the sauna for more than 15 minutes before you, you know, get overheated. Well, I lived in that sauna for like three and a half years. It was, it was, that, it was that hot. It was 100, in the 120 degrees every day. And it was so difficult to just live. Like you had to pull your own water out of the ground wash your clothes by hand, make your own meals with fresh ingredients, all that kind of stuff. It was a challenge just to like live day by day every day. And my goal was just do one thing. I'm just going to do one thing towards the goal of my Peace Corps assignment. Just do one thing. And I feel that way about goals is if every day you can just do one thing towards that vision. You know, people like Tony Robbins say people overestimate what they can do in a year but underestimate how much they can do in 10 years. And I'm 20 years now into my career from when I was 23 and joined the Peace Corps. Now I'm 44 if you're trying to do the math. (laughs) And um, it feels like we've accomplished a lot. But for me, it feels like I just finally am understanding how the world works in a way to be effective for like the next 20 years. Well, let's just talk about that next 20 years. What is your vision? your future what waves do you still want to make my next 20 years i don't want to be spending my time 
managing something that already exists. The next 20 years, I think, will largely be around trying to innovate in this education space. And in that too, I think I'm really starting to consider what this looks like from like a policy perspective. I've always been somewhat like politically involved and, you know, was the president of my high school and the president of my university. And I'm starting to start thinking about like whether or not committing some part of my life to to policy reform at a much higher level would be in the cards. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Let let me ask you just one last question. What advice would you give to a 23-year-old right now who's listening to this and wants to know, my gosh, I want to do what she's done in the past 21 years or so? Mm -hmm. What advice would you give? I would say do it. You can do it all. Just maybe not at one time. I do think that we have and I've been blessed with a set of circumstances that you really can do a lot. I see my white privilege and understand that things are easier for me. At the same time, I, I do think that if if you want to do something, you just put, you know, try to keep putting one foot in front of the other until the rough rocks are smoothed away and your path is open. The other thing that I would want people to reflect on is is why they're why. Why would you want to accomplish this goal. And mine is, you know, that I understand one of my favorite quotes is Leela Watson, who says, if you come here to help me, then leave. But if you've come here because your freedom and your liberty is is bound to mine, then stay and let us work together. So I think what's important in that quote is that no one's coming for you. You have to decide and what you're going to do with your life, but know that your whole life is interdependent in other people's. So if what you feel and what your passion is and what you want to do is creating such a calling in you, then just do it. And, and the world will actually conspire to help you make those things happen. But you have to make the first step. Excellent. I want to thank you so much for spending this time with us on Wave Makers. And I well, wish- Steve, I'd like to challenge you that I would like a future episode of Wave Makers be me interviewing you. Because you have done so much for this community. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Rios. See you later. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. And that does it for another edition of Wavemakers. If you are interested in finding out more about the Global Field Academy, a project of Educate Tomorrow, go to globalfieldacademy.org. That's globalfieldacademy.org or call 305-374-3751, 305-374-3751. If you're interested in Educate Tomorrow, go to educatetomorrow.org, educatetomorrow.org. And to find out more information about the Drexel Fund, you got it, drexelfund.org, drexelfund.org. For Wavemakers, this is Dr. Steve Rios. Join us again next time, and remember, Keep making waves.